Welcome to a new edition of the SAP Education Newscast, now episode number 49. My name is Christoph Hafner and with me today my co-host Thomas Jennewein. Hi Thomas. Hi, hi everyone. And today we have a guest joining us via Skype from the US, Mr. John Hagel, author and management consultant. Hello, John. Hi there. How are you? Good. It's great to have you here in our podcast today, John. So could you maybe um, introduce yourself uh, a little bit? I think many listeners of this education newscast already know your books and concepts for, for example, on ecosystems or power of pull. However, um, yeah, what, what was your journey so far? <laughs> It's been a long journey. <laughs> I started, I actually grew up in a different country every year as a child, so a global upbringing. Um, I moved to Silicon Valley almost 40 years ago, and uh, I've been here ever since. Uh, I've done uh, uh, two, I was the founder of two tech startups. I was a senior executive with Atari in the video game business. and. Um, Spent 16 years with McKinsey and Company, was a leader of their strategy practice. And about 12 years ago, I was recruited into Deloitte to set up a new research center. We call it the Center for the Edge. And I've been running that ever since. So that's, uh, that's the journey. Oh, wow. Atari, I remember that from playing video games <laughs> Excellent. when I was a kid. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Uh, Same great. here. And, And uh, could you describe what, what you're currently doing in this uh, Edge Center? That sounds pretty interesting. Yes, uh, it, it, I was brought in to set it up, and the charter for the, for the Center for the Edge is to identify emerging business opportunities that should be on the CEO's agenda but are not and to do the research to persuade them to put it on the agenda. So we're unlike many research centers where you wait for somebody to give you a call and say they want research on a topic. For us, if they're calling us, it's too late. We want to be focused on the things they should be calling about but are not. So that's, that's broadly the charter. Oh, interesting. And could you give an example of what you're currently researching, for example? Yes, yeah, so currently uh, we just finished a research initiative around, um, it's broadly within the topic of the future of work, um, but it's addressing an opportunity that we believe is not really on the agenda for most companies, most CEOs, and it, it goes back to the most basic question of all, which is what should work be, what could work be as technology takes over more and more of the routine tasks. And our, our belief is most work today, certainly in large companies, is fairly tightly specified routine tasks. Mm. Um, and that more and more of that is going to be taken by automation and machines. And um, the opportunity we see is to refocus people on a new form of work, which we identify as addressing unseen problems and opportunities to create more value. Uh, wherever they are in the organization. It could be as a, as a, a janitor in, in a building, it could be on supply chain side, it could be customer side, but it's being alert in whatever context you're in, what are the problems and opportunities <clears throat> that if addressed could create much more value. And so that, that's the, the new form of work that we think is a big opportunity. Of course, a big opportunity if it creates more value and less, uh, less, let's say, manual work or repetitive work. And uh, just out of interest, uh, so uh, where can re uh, the the listeners of the podcast uh, can they somehow uh, access those uh, those results of the research? Yes, I, I should say that again, we're unlike many research centers in the sense that all of our research is freely available. We do not charge for it. It's all available online. If you just search for a Center for the Edge, and uh, the specific report that, that I'm talking about here is called Redefining Work. So if you search for Redefining Work at the Center for the Edge, uh, hopefully you will you'll get access to that, that research report. Mm, yeah, we will definitely link this in the show notes then as well. Yeah. Great, great. 
And, and a great interesting topic. Uh, probably we could even do a full own podcast on that because it's a <laughs> big, big, uh, big, big topic. But but before we go to that, so I uh, would like to ask you the following one. So, so you, you developed had some pretty yeah, well-known frameworks or let's call it mental models or whatever. So like power of pull, co-creative spaces, uh, ecosystem approaches. And also inspired probably a lot of like us or other authors, thinkers. So, so could could you give an uh, overview on your on your works? Uh, it, uh, this would be pretty interesting. So that. Uh, how many hours do we have? <laughs> <laughs> we have enough time. <laughs> we have enough time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think uh, overall, uh, our work is driven by a, a view that the global economy is transforming in a fundamental way, and it's uh, accelerating change, and that in that context, um, there's a need to really um, – First of all, understand the shifts, what, how the economy is evolving, but then to, to focus on action um, to get impact. And I think one of, our, one of our key themes in our work is what we call small moves, smartly made, can set big things in motion. And uh, our view is that you need to identify what are the big opportunities that are emerging as a result of these changes, but then start with small moves and learn through action as you begin to see the impact you're achieving and iterate and refine as you, as you go. Okay, yeah, I think that's, uh, that sounds uh, very, very reasonable also because we live in the ever Everlasting transformation, right? So, uh, and uh, how do you see those different approaches um, or, or the shifts uh, uh, develop over the last years? So, uh, do you see, let's say, a, a, a pattern or, a, a, let's say, different themes or so? Yes, there there are many ways of describing what we call the big shift, mm. which is the the way the world economy is is changing. One one way we have of describing it is moving from stocks to flows, and what we mean by that is the way business created value and succeeded in the past was by developing some proprietary knowledge stocks, something that no one else knew, aggressively protecting it and then efficiently extracting the value and delivering it to the marketplace. The problem in a world that's more rapidly changing is those stocks of knowledge depreciate at an accelerating rate. And so mm -hmm. if all you're doing is focusing on protecting your existing knowledge, you're protecting, protecting a diminishing asset. Our view is that the companies and institutions that will succeed in the future <clears throat> are those that focus on how to participate in a broader range of more diverse knowledge flows so that they're accelerating the replenishing of their knowledge stocks. So stocks to flows is one way. Another mm -hmm. way is push to pull. I mean, again, mm -hmm. if you think of way business uh, succeeded in the past, it was by developing a forecast or prediction of demand and then pushing people and resources into place at the right time to meet that demand. Our belief in a world that, again, has more uncertainty associated with it is that the institutions and companies that will succeed in the future are those that master what we call the power of pull. How do you participate in larger and larger pull platforms where you can draw out the people and resources you need when you need them and where you need them rather than pushing them into place in advance? <clears throat> fundamentally different way of organizing and mobilizing resources that we think going to be critical to success in this rapidly changing world. Do you yeah, see then, this maybe as well as, um, as a concept that works inside organization as well as in, I don't know, loosely coupled networks when you say um, you, you pull the resources and the knowledge you need at a certain time? Does this mean you, you do this in an existing organization coming with a pool of skills and knowledge and, and people? Or um, is this maybe really de depending just only on, on yeah, the, this knowledge and the skills and the resources availability, but they do not necessarily belong into one closed organization. 
No, I think it's a, it's an important point that increasingly <clears throat> the access to pull resources will be beyond your individual company, but even within your company, we believe that within the organization, having a, a platforms, if you will, that will help you to draw out the people and resources within your company when you need them and where you need them is also going to be important. Mm -hmm. And and so this probably also means, and we see this uh, everywhere, uh, that this means also big change, let's say how organizations uh, are set up. Like currently we still have a lot of silos or lines of businesses like with this classical hierarchical uh, setup, but or so this uh, this is another let's say evidence uh, that that this at least uh, needs to change if you want to be fast uh, reacting to market changes and so on. No, exactly. I, we believe that organiza the organization of of our traditional institutions will shift very much from a classic command and control hierarchical system to one that's a much more um, network of, of small units of, of participants and we, we mm. call them cells, work groups mm. or cells. It's typically five to 15 people that can be drawn in when needed and where needed. And uh, I think if you look to, for example, to Silicon Valley, probably there, this future is already there. So some people also say the future is here, it's just not same, <laughs> diff uh, uh, so it's just different everywhere. It's not evenly distributed. So how do you see the adoption uh, of this flow approach, for example, and pull approach uh, based on geography or industry? So there are probably some changes or... Yeah, I'd say that um, the interesting thing that we see is that um, even in Silicon Valley, as a small entrepreneurial company, you tend to adopt this kind of more flexible pull-based approach. Um, but the issue as you scale is that they, they bring in seasoned executives from more larger, more traditional institutions and they began to implement the traditional approach, which is much more push-based approach. So the challenge is to scale this and, and maintain it versus evolve it into the more traditional model. And I'd say that, um, frankly, I, we don't see geographically or even industry a significant you know, move of early adopters. I mean, again, you see in, in certain pockets, uh, you know, uh, Berlin, uh, Tel Aviv, uh, Silicon Valley, Shenzhen in China, you can see uh, the, a lot of innovation emerging and entrepreneurial activity. But again, the challenge is when they scale, they begin to uh, move to the old model, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You just mentioned scale, and I think that's also a concept I read often in your in your work: the scalable learning. Uh, yeah, uh, so that organizations need to be moving more towards that. Uh, let's say not only the scale efficiency, but scale learning. So, could you define what you mean with that? You know, we are yeah. also from the learning area. Of course, this is something what we what we really also called our interest. Yes, now it's a, it's a core theme in our work. Again, another way of representing this big shift that I talked about is the way our traditional organizations have been organized. It's around a model, an institutional model that we describe as scalable efficiency, mm -hmm. where the key, the key to success is to become more and more efficient at scale. And the focus is, as a result, on cost management and, and reducing costs, doing things faster and cheaper at scale. Um, but the challenge with, with uh, a scalable efficiency model, although it's driven huge success in many, many companies, it's a diminishing returns proposition. The more efficient you become, the longer and harder you have to work to get that next increment of efficiency. Our, our view in a world that's more rapidly changing, there will be a fundamentally different institutional model that will drive success, and we call it scalable learning. It's the notion that the reason people will come together in large institutions, large organizations, is because of the opportunity to learn faster together. 
that, than they ever could if they were just on their own or part of a smaller organization. And learning becomes, in a more rapidly changing world, we believe learning becomes a key factor for success. If you're not learning faster, you're going to be more and more marginalized. Mm -hmm. uh, but our belief is it is a fundamental shift and it's going to be very challenging for companies that have been organized around this scalable efficiency model mm -hmm. to, to embrace scalable learning. <clears throat> and uh, on which level do you see that learning? Is it more on an organizational team or ecosystem level or perhaps individual or is it all of, all of it? it? It's at all Probably levels. All. Huh? all levels. I should say too that When I talk about scalable learning to most executives in traditional organizations, they very quickly narrow the focus to training programs. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> you know we, we do learning. We have training programs, um, and but that's the that's a focus on sharing existing knowledge. Mm. And it's not to say that's irrelevant or not useful, but in a more rapidly changing world, the most valuable form of learning is creating new knowledge by confronting situations that have never been addressed before and finding ways to create value in those situations. That kind of learning, we believe, takes place on the front line of the organization. It's not in a training room. It's in the work environment. And um, it's uh, the focusing on helping people throughout the organization at all levels, all parts, all departments and functions, all our people to learn faster together. And, that's, and yeah. maybe one question um, there towards people. Um, if we look at people, what we want them to do, um, yes. I think it's a lot and it's really challenging. Um, is there... Um, maybe the problem that we are overstraining people that they really um, feel feared or scared about this rapid changing world that you mentioned a couple of times because a lot of things happen. The, the way we make business, the, the way we, we get knowledge, the way we share knowledge, but also political things are, are changing rapidly. We have climate change. So a lot of things um, that make people think um, how we can really su support people in, in this, especially this learning topic? That's, a, again, a great question. I think that uh, one of the challenges I see is, again, in the, in the business world today, there's increasingly a, a focus on what, what is described as lifelong learning. We're going to have to learn every day for the rest of our lives. And, but, you know, what I find is that very few people actually address the question of why? What's yeah. the motivation to do that? Exactly. Yeah. And, and the, the unstated assumption, frankly, I believe, is that they're going to have to do this because of fear, as you were saying, because if I don't learn, I'm going to lose my job. Well, you know, fear can be, can be a motivator to learn, but it is not a, a very effective motivator. Mm. And if all they're doing is learning through fear, they're going to do the, 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 you know, the minimum amount they can to get by. Um, our belief is we need to find ways to motivate people to become excited about the prospect to learn throughout their lives. And you know, as human beings, I think we all have a desire to achieve more impact and have more potential, but we've been conditioned in environments where you know you just you know get get a certificate and come to work and you get the security of a job and that's that's the that's the way it is, but I think I'm an optimist. I do believe that if we if we can focus on helping people to see the opportunity that they'll actually become excited about it and want to pursue it versus just, um, you know, uh, being afraid. And uh, do you have some tips for companies uh, to, to really start the transformation or shift, how you call it? So, so what could be, let's say, uh, first steps, uh, what, what, what everyone could do? Do you have some, uh, some inspiration on that? Well, I think I think that uh, one key uh, lesson or, or uh, message I would have is that I, I think that again, too many companies are trying to motivate people to change and organization drive organizational change 
through uh, through the threat. You know, if we don't change, we're going to die. You know, we'll, we'll, the burning platform uh, mm. motivation. And um, I think, while at one level, that's understandable. It feeds the fear. Um, and I think that the the way to really start to uh, motivate people to make the changes necessary is through framing an opportunity. What's a really big opportunity? You know, what as a as a company or a business, what what big market opportunity is there out there that we've never really addressed? But if we could only learn faster about it, you know, we could achieve amazing things. That starts to excite people. Now we're talking about achieving something really significant, and I'm willing to take some risk to do it, uh, particularly if the leadership, and this is another point, a key advice for leadership is, you know, in the scalable efficiency world, the mark of a strong leader is someone who has the answer to all the questions. No matter what question, you can count on the leader to have an answer. And by the way, if they don't have an answer, maybe it's time to get rid of them and get a leader who does. The, 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 it, that is the model that drove the scalable efficiency world. In the scalable learning world, our belief is the mark of a strong leader is someone who has the most powerful questions mm. and, and who will freely admit they don't know the answer and ask for help because I think again I think a key key part in learning is the willingness to ask for help if you don't know you need some help how can others help you come to an answer and I think it it starts to uh, set a very different culture and set of practices in an organization where it is okay to ask questions number one because in a scalable efficiency world questions are a distraction just follow the instructions and do what you're told. Um, and asking for help is a sign of weakness, right? You know, mm. you should know what to do. Um, versus, again, in a scalable learning world, it's all about the questions and it's all about coming together and helping each other come to better and better answers. So that's also this, this picture of the manager more as a coach, yeah, which, uh, yeah, which being leadership development, I'm also trained. Organization psychologists, I think there we, we have it, of course, since years, uh, in the, let's say, as a, as a future picture, but, uh, uh the adoption, adoption is also, uh, slow, but, uh, yeah, this absolutely goes into that direction. Where do you see this whole discussion around purpose, uh, that, so that every company, every department needs a purpose, uh, uh, so this probably also goes in a similar, uh, uh direction, uh, I actually like opportunity because it's more 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 concrete. It's more yes. uh, it's not esoteric uh, that we all make the world run better. We all, of course, want to do a good job, but the opportunity perhaps is more concrete. Or it makes it more tangible, and I think it also the other thing is the questions. Again, it's mm -hmm. what's a really powerful question that we don't have an answer to that would help us address that opportunity. So here's the opportunity, here are the questions, now let's figure it out. Let's work together and come together to figure it out. And uh, do you have some examples where, where you see the scalable learning really worked out at a company, perhaps even at a big company where it's probably tougher uh, because you have a, a more rigid uh, culture often? Yeah, I think, I mean, there are pockets of, of examples. I think, you know, one of the um, early examples that has been talked about a lot, uh, unfortunately, I don't think it's been widely used or, or adopted, but, you know, in the early days, oh, well, this was decades ago, uh, Toyota um, mm -hmm. went out into their factories and redefined the work for the workers and said, you know, yes, you have some routine tasks, you're in an assembly line, but your real job? is to identify problems and not just identify the problem but fix it right there and uh, as soon as you see the problem and if you don't can't fix it you know we'll, you have a cord you can pull and we'll stop the assembly line we'll swarm you with a team of people to help you solve it and you'll be a hero for having done that um, you found a problem that needed to be solved 
And that, I think, is an interesting example of, of the redefining work in a very conventional um, uh, part of the business. Again, I think when, when people talk about scalable learning or um, it's all about, you know, innovation labs or research centers, you know, mm -hmm. that's where you can learn. But in most of the organization, you just want to do your job and, um, and be done with it. I think that example illustrates that actually, no, even in the most you know, traditional, conventional parts of a large business, an assembly line factory operation, you can start to focus people on learning and, uh, and improving performance at a more and more rapid rate. No, that, that's, uh, uh, that's a good parallel. Also, if I remind the uh, human relations movement, which is quite some years ago, they also, let's say, started at the, I think, light bulb production <laughs> line or so. And, yeah. Uh, uh. And yes, maybe uh. in, when, when hearing this, for me, this sounds really like um, empowerment for um, the workers. So moving away from, from these standard actions that you do each and every day and repetitive um, Uh, towards more uh, taking taking more uh, or being a part really of of taking decisions and and look into into the different things that you are actually doing um what do you think john w would this um also drive maybe a change in in the business structure maybe more moving from from bottom up to um Uh, from top-down to bottom-up organizations so that the people are really empowered and they are real stakeholders of their business or their company and maybe that um, the, the people define who is um, the, the leading board of a company instead of um, getting this um, just from top-down and it's, it is like it is and you have to deal with it um, instead of um, having a corporation of all um, employees in a company and really defining who is the the board, for example. Right. Now, I, our view is that if you take seriously the opportunity around scalable learning, it requires you to rethink all aspects of the organization, how you organize, how you operate on a day-to-day -day basis, how you measure performance, reward performance. All of that has to be fundamentally rethought if your focus is scalable learning. And I, I, our belief is it is going to require much more initiative taking at the lowest levels of the organization. Now, it's always a balancing act, too, because, again, I think there's there's a whole school of thought that everybody becomes kind of independent entrepreneurs or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but it, I think there's still value from leadership in defining, um, in helping to identify opportunities, what's a really big opportunity, and then also focusing the organization on what we call metrics that matter. So given that opportunity, what are the metrics that would really accelerate our movement towards getting to that, that new opportunity? And then tracking that, that, those metrics. And again, in a scalable learning model, our belief is it's not just linear improvement in performance. It's ultimately accelerating improvement in performance. And that really focuses everybody on addressing problems and opportunities that can help them accelerate the performance, not just proceed linearly. So there's also, so that, uh, at least here in Europe, there's also a lot of discussion around, let's say, future of work and new work, which is pretty fussy and a lot of things play into that. But I hear also a lot of, let's say, common themes or so, yeah, let's say. Mm like to approach how, how people are incentivized, paid, uh, how we organize companies uh, also. Yes. Uh, and where do you see barriers in that transformation? Of course, it's a culture oh, and, and perhaps <laughs> the existing, uh, the existing, uh, the existing uh, reward mechanisms perhaps also. Yeah. Now, huge barriers. I don't want to in any way underestimate the challenge or difficulty in making this this shift. Uh, a lot of it has to do with um, I, I've become increasingly of the view that if we're really serious about driving change, we need to focus on psychology and uh, the emotions of people and what emotions are, are dominant. And I would say... Uh, 
unfortunately, increasingly, at least in my experience around the world, the dominant emotion that I'm feeling from everyone I interact with is fear. Um, you know, we're, we're in a world of increasing pressure, more rapid change, and it's a natural human reaction to become afraid. But mm. I think fear generates resistance. Mm. I mean, if I'm afraid, I want to hold on to what made me successful in the past. I don't want to give that up. I want to hold on to it. And so that feeds the resistance to any effort to change. And again, I think the, the key is how do we move people, first of all, acknowledge the fear, recognize the fear, but then create an environment and conditions that help people to overcome the fear and actually become very excited about the opportunity for change. And that's a very different kind of approach to, to change. Yeah, one big theme here at SAP, for example, just uh, to share that is, is trust, because if you have trust, Yeah, there's less fear, but yes. of course it's a big, big uh, transformation that, that you also change um, managers in their behavior, that they have a more trust-based, uh, trustful uh, leadership climate or, or frame or so. Uh. Well, I, and I'll go back to my comment earlier about the mark of a strong leader in a scalable efficiency world. If you're claiming you have the answer to all the questions as a leader, I know there are two possibilities. One is you have no clue about how rapidly the world is changing and how little you actually know, or you're lying to me. You know you don't have all the answers, but you're telling me you do. In either case, it erodes trust. And I think that's the reason why in surveys you see around the world that trust is eroding in, in our institutions, virtually everywhere in all kinds of institutions. It, you know, it's, it starts with the leadership and, and willingness A part of building trust is expressing vulnerability to say, I don't know, and I need help. You know, that builds trust. And so I think absolutely right. If we don't have trust, we're not going to be able to uh, create the conditions to, to drive the change. Mm. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So I think we, that's, a, of course, a very a deep uh, discussion. And uh, <laughs> also it's, it's difficult, let's say, to to do this cultural, let's say, uh, transformation, because I think some things, we also already learn it in school, uh, for example, let's say how to, or let's say how our parents uh, educate us or so. So it's, I think it's also more something on a societal uh, level, yeah, uh, perhaps even. So, but if you look on, on now and people development and education and so, so like, uh, uh, But, but, but what I see, and you mentioned this already a little bit, so, so what I see, so there's this more, more social or on the top learning formats like peer learning, collaboration, learning in the flow of work is also, I think by ex-colleague from you, by Charles Bershin, he really, uh, mm. is talking a lot of about that, but I think it's much harder to facilitate that than just offer some training and a training catalog or so. So, so do you have any tips for the learning department or for the chief learning officer, how, how they could transform? Like again, also do this cultural support that cultural change or do you have some more smaller concrete tips for, for those uh, group of people? Yeah, no, I, again, I want to acknowledge the, the challenge and <laughs> this is not easy. <laughs> Um, but in my experience, my advice to, to that kind of person is, first of all, you need to find a champion in the organization. And ideally, it's the CEO or at least somebody who reports to the CEO who really has conviction that, that a different form of learning is going to be essential and will help to uh, inspire and, and drive people. The other piece is then to find a part of the organization, at, at least initially, which is relatively new. It might be driving a new business initiative or addressing a new customer segment or something where that where there's not a well-established set of practices already in place. And focus on implementing this kind of learning model with the, with the front line in that part of the organization 
And then also to focus on, again, a theme in our work is this notion of metrics that matter. At the outset, identifying what are the metrics that you could point to to say, is learning accelerating or not? And what's been the impact of that learning? Because again, ultimately, I think the key to, to shifting people in, in the more traditional parts of the organization is to be able to point to results and say, actually, we're accelerating performance improvement in these areas because we've adopted a new approach to learning in the front lines. But having those metrics, I think, is going to be key to overcoming the skepticism and building more support. Could you share some of those metrics? So, no, just if I think about SAP, perhaps for a software developer or for a sales rep, perhaps sales yeah. rep is more frontline. Yeah, yeah I, you know, we we have a, a cascade, a framework of metrics. Mm -hmm. The matter it starts at the highest level with financial metrics. So, I'll give you an example just to illustrate. Uh, it could be that the company, the financial challenge for the company is revenue growth. That's the biggest issue that's occupying the leadership. Okay, that's a metric that matters at the financial level. Drill down one level to what we call operating metrics to say, okay, what's what seems to be driving that lack of revenue growth? And it could be um, your you're losing customers at a rapid rate, and so it's hard to grow because you're losing the customers you have, much less adding new ones. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's drive one more level down to frontline metrics and say, why, why are customers leaving? And again, just as an illustration, it could be in your call center operations, um, your customers are calling with problems and they're, they're getting frustrated, they're not getting the answers they need, and they're leaving. Okay, now we've identified a, 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 far, a very specific front line of the organization where if you could make a difference there and measure things like you know, customer satisfaction post-calls, post um, you could materially change the financial performance of the overall company in a very uh, meaningful way. And so it's focusing again on what are the metrics that the front line could really make a difference on, but that would have impact more broadly in the company. That, mm. uh, that's and basically, these are the so it's all tied back to the business KPIs, which of course absolutely makes sense that it's not something only for learning, but it's really right impacting and, the business. And where possible, focusing on metrics that are not just efficiency-based, you know, doing things mm -hmm. faster and cheaper, but at where it's about creating more value, you know, creating a more satisfied customer. Okay, that's, that's something that's meaningful to the customer, meaningful to the company. Let's have more of that. Mm. And can you share some learning formats then? How, which could be practiced in the front like? Like, is it then more mentoring, reverse mentoring, coaching? We do, we do fellowships or, or perhaps even now currently in Europe very coming up is, is uh, working out loud, which is, uh, uh, which is, let's say, a series of uh, sessions uh, where you exchange in a group. So in, in the end, it's a peer yeah. learning format. Yeah, yeah I think. Like uh, that or? There are many approaches that I think uh, it depends in part on the context, but um, one of the things we've become big proponents of is that mm -hmm. if you're serious about scalable learning and learning faster, no matter how smart any individual is, they're going to be a lot, they're going to learn a lot faster if they're part of a small group that gets to know each other extremely well and deeply trusts each other. Um, and again, we call them work groups or cells uh, that where they are working together on a daily basis. They're not just coming together once a week to meet, but they're, they're interacting with each other on a daily basis, lear learning through observation and learning through uh, you know, discussion and challenging each other. Um, but it's, it's organizing these work groups you know, most uh, many workers, at least still today, are sitting in cubicles, isolated. Bringing them together, presenting them with with challenging questions and and um, opportunities that they could be pursuing, and then encouraging things that, that we have a set of practices that uh, we believe can accelerate learning within a work group. We've done research on that. We call it 
business practice redesign. But it, you know, one practice, which again is a bit counterintuitive to most traditional companies, is um, what we call productive friction. It's encouraging these work groups to challenge each other on a continuing basis, and but to do it out of respect for each other because we're all trying to get to a better and better outcome or impact, not because we're trying to put each other down, uh, but we, we want to be more successful together. And so it's challenging, building that, that challenging culture so that people can learn. So I think a, a key thing is, is focusing on, on organizing work groups and cultivating a set of practices within the work groups that can help them to learn faster. And these work groups then work on real problems, uh, business problems, yes. right? So not yes. on uh, some things what the CEO says and then it's no, no one is interested in this later. So, Right. No, it's totally... Totally down on the front line uh, on performance okay. issues that they can directly influence and shape uh, through their actions. All right. So, uh, Christoph, do you have any further questions regarding that learning and training? Otherwise, I would move to the next because I have some other questions which go in a little bit other direction. Yeah, I, I have maybe one question um, as as I'm. Yeah, in the role of a learning experience designer, um, mm -hmm. this we we talked a lot of it. Um, but but um, maybe do you, do you also have a concrete example how a learning experience in detail mm -hmm. could could change and therefore um, really um, um, have this this impact that that we have just heard. Um. Well, again, we've done a lot of research around specific work groups. We, we tried to go in and identify work groups where there is accelerating performance improvement and say, what can we learn from the practices that were adopted in those work groups? But there's, <clears throat> it, again, it's very context-specific. We looked at everything from emergency room uh, doctors and nurses in a hospital to uh, uh people who are, are maintaining pipelines for oil and gas companies to um, a tomato processing company. <laughs> But all of them had, you know, were, were focused on, on organizing work groups and bringing together these practices that, that are key to accelerating the learning and getting people excited about it. Again, I think part of this is a coaching Uh, and mentoring kind of uh, approach, which says together we can have impact that we would have never imagined possible, and you know really make a difference. And that that to for most people is pretty exciting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, one one question for me would be: So how do you keep yourself uh, up to date, and how do you develop uh, yourself? So do you have also? <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, that's a challenge. Uh, the world's <laughs> changing so rapidly. I, you know, I, we call we call ourselves the Center for the Edge, and one of the reasons we we adopted that name is because our belief is that uh, the richest places to learn are in on edges. It could be uh, ah. ge geographic edges, you know, emerging economies. It could be demographic edges, new generations coming into the workforce or the marketplace, uh, technology edges. But I try to spend as much time as I can on the edge of various kinds of edges and start to look for patterns. You know, what are things that are emerging there that seem to be not just one isolated situation, but The, the start of something much more significant. So, for me, that's um, that's a key part of my learning. And so, what was the latest edge uh, where you have been around, or perhaps differently? What, what did you learn meaningful lately? How, <laughs> how did you do that? Well, you know, it's perhaps not an edge. The other form of edge is just uh, crossing disciplinary boundaries. The edges. Mm that separate thing management practices and you know academic so i i've been spending a, an increasing amount of time actually with psychologists because of this belief that increasingly it's about emotions and you know that's going to be the 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 key to driving more more effective learning 
And one of the things that I just started to realize through some of my interactions with these psychologists is, you know, I talked about fear as the dominant emotion. But for many people, when I talk to them about this, they say, well, we're not, we're not feeling people expressing a lot of fear. And what I learned from the psychologists that I've interacted with is that for many people, expressing fear is a sign of weakness. You know, you don't want to express fear. So you express it in the form of other emotions. It could be um, anger. It mm -hmm. could be anxiety, you know, loneliness. But if you go deeper and understand why are they feeling that, well, it's because of fear. <laughs> and so it's, it's this notion of don't just take the surface emotion, mm. but go deeper to really understand what's driving that emotion. And that, that to me was a big insight. Mm. Oh yeah. yeah. I think yeah, this I, this is really some uh, sorry Tom. <laughs> for for me the the word fear is is like uh, the red line going through this this podcast episode and really <laughs> being open there and and um, knowing how to to deal with that uh, is is one of the the key factors how people need to change in in the future and especially what you just explained um this this behavior of n not showing any fear is um i think this is the normal case uh, in our societies and across different societies and um this really re requires a, a lot of change in in thinking and and showing emotions which I think is a long way to go, but um, yeah, as you said, you, you it's it's doable. Yeah, I'm an optimist. At the end of the day, uh, people ask me, "Am I an optimist or a pessimist?" And I say, "Well, I'm a long-term optimist and a short-term pessimist." And the reason for that is I believe that I'm motivated by a sense of opportunity and that things are achievable that are are going to be amazing. But I also need to be realistic about the obstacles and the challenges of addressing those opportunities. So short-term pessimist, but long-term optimist. That sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, perhaps uh, another question. So, so, uh, so. You, you know, you wrote all that books and also developed that concept. So, so do you have any tips, let's say, on developing such a thought leadership skill? So is it this being on the edge, uh, trying out things, uh, challenging yourself? Um, yeah, you know, I, I, at the end of the day, one of the themes in our work is the ultimate motivation to drive learning and I would say thought leadership is passion. You know, you need you need to find something that you are really passionate about, that excites you, where you're willing to go out on the edge, take the risk, explore areas that have not been explored before. And, and yes, you're going to feel some fear because if you're on the edge, you're, it, it's scary. But on the other side, the passion focuses you on the opportunity to really learn something and, and go where no, pe no, no one has gone before. And I think that's ultimately, in my view, the key to thought leadership is cultivating that passion, finding that passion wherever it is, whatever area it is, that's where you're going to be a thought leader in if you really let that passion express itself and pursue it. Right. And, and do you have any references where people can perhaps further deep dive? So probably your blog or, and uh, of course, your, uh, your books. Yeah, I should say the passion of the explorer, uh, it's a very specific form of passion uh -huh. that emerged from the research we did around areas of sustained extreme performance improvement. And mm -hmm. that we've got a number of research reports on passion of the explorer, which can be searched for online. Um, but I also have a blog a site. It's called Edge Perspectives, and mm -hmm. uh, I, I frequently share some of my more recent ideas on, on that blog and certainly would uh, encourage people to seek that out. And, and the Center for the Edge has its website with all the, uh, all the um, research reports there if you're interested. 
Right, thanks. Yeah, and I think there is mm -hmm. also a lot of content out there, let's say on career coaching and so on, which goes into a similar direction to find your passion, your strengths, and perhaps also your talents, which is also uh, important that the passion somehow matches uh, that. Yeah. Uh, so we yeah we, we can put that. Uh, we're very happy to put that in the in the in the show notes. Mm -hmm. so I think we're already coming to the end. We're, it's more than thirty forty minutes now. So. Strives uh, quite some topics. So, is, do you want to address uh, also, John? No, I very much appreciate the conversation. I, I would say also that I'm very active on social media, and I, every day I try to share at least three or four things that uh, I've just recently learned that I think might be interesting for others. And so, would certainly encourage uh, encourage on Twitter or LinkedIn or Facebook. I mean, there are many places to find me. Yeah, follow John on, on Twitter. There are a lot of good, I think, three, four good links every day. So, <laughs> very insightful, yeah. Okay, Excellent. Christoph, do you want to, do you have any further questions? Oh, I haven't. I would thank you, John, for taking the time to talk to us in our podcast. That's really, really great. And I got a lot of insights here. That's really cool and I um, at the end only have um, one or two housekeeping things to say so um, this is what I will do at the end but um, first of all um, yeah thank you John for being here I appreciate yeah. the opportunity thank you very much for great questions yeah thanks also so much for my t uh, for my side to you also to all the listeners of course I think that's a great uh, opportunity also to just get to more, know a little bit more uh, But John has concepts, and I would like, like really ask all of you to check out his blog. I think there's, there's a lot of great work. I think it's interesting for everyone in business, but definitely also, let's say, for learning and development folks or people in training uh, where we are coming from. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And just um, before we um, come to the end, I would um, announce that we will have we will continue the next um, three episodes of this podcast in German again, and uh, this becomes very interesting. We we have a, um, some special editions there, really coming from our internal HR organization um, uh, with very interesting topics. So insights, what happens uh, at SAP in in terms of learning as well so how are things changing at sap i think that's for for external audiences as well very interesting so we will have uh, some special editions there so that's it from from my side again thanks to you uh, again and um yeah uh, we are happy if um, our listeners if you join us on twitter or on linkedin and go into discussion and ask questions or discuss the topics that we are discussing here all right yeah so thanks again from my side it was a pleasure having you here john appreciate it thank you thank you bye 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 bye